If you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus is the second book in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me in a moment or two. We've been going through the Exodus story uh, on and off for about two years now, um, just following through um, perhaps what's probably, I think, not one of the most exciting stories in the Bible, perhaps one of the most exciting stories in all of human history. Uh, if you want a kind of a, a story that has drama and rescue and passion and is just vivid in its detail and its color and its life, then the Exodus story is definitely the place to turn. And lots of Hollywood movies have followed that theme and made all sorts of different movies and stories either based directly or inspired by the Exodus story. And in Exodus chapter one, you find uh, the people of God, the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. They're being oppressed by the Egyptians. Pharaoh, who is leading the Egyptian people, is uh, treating them as his slave people to build uh, his pyramids and everything else that's happening in Egypt. Um, and you see, particularly in the beginning chapters, that the oppression kind of cranks up and up and becomes more and more brutal and harsh. And the people of God cry out to their God and ask him for help. Um, but he's already been at work. He's already working amongst them. And then the story goes on uh, with this character Moses who God raises up to lead the people out of Egypt. And you get this wonderful story of their deliverance to use a biblical word, their redemption, about how God draws them out of their slavery in Egypt. And he's not just drawing them out, he's drawing them into something. He's drawing them into his promised land, into his plans and purposes that he has for them, ultimately into himself. Uh, and where we've got to in the story is God's rescued them, he takes them through the Red Sea, they go out into the wilderness, and they come to Mount Sinai where God gives them their laws, their commandments, his kind of his constitution, basically, his kind of freedom charter of how he wants them to live. And then we're going to hit in a, we're going to read a kind of fascinating story that happens just towards the end of that in chapter 23, just a, f a few verses that highlight quite a fascinating story that happens. So I'm going to read that now. And then we will pray. So this is from verse 20 to verse 33 of Exodus 23. It says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guide you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I'll be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. 
but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord, your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. I'll take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I'll fulfill the number of your days. I'll send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I'll make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I'll send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I'll not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I'll drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I'll set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I'll give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. If you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that we come to a God of rescue, that you don't look at us from afar. You're not just this kind of distant architect in the sky who's created this world and then observes through a window, but you've stepped down into our reality. Jesus, you stepped down to be one of us, to live the lives that we lead, but only you did it perfectly. And you did it for a purpose to redeem us, to ransom us, to deliver us to draw us out from our sin and slavery and draw us into you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we look at these words this morning, you would speak to our hearts, remind us of your overwhelming grace and mercy and love for us and draw us ever deeper into you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if any of you, when you were growing up, watched the TV show Quantum Leap. Has anyone heard of that? A few people, good. For the rest of you, then, I don't know what you were doing in the early 1990s, but Quantum Leap was the thing to watch. Some people are laughing as though this wasn't the best TV show of all time. I don't know what's wrong with you. Anyway, in Quantum Leap, it tells the story of this character, Sam Beckett who is basically a time traveler, uh, and he leaps from situation to situation uh, through the course of history, but he always arrives uh, in people. He kind of takes over their bodies, and he has to live out a certain period of their life and try and normally bring this person through some kind of trial, uh, some kind of challenge in their life and he has to kind of lead them through. And Sam has this assistant called Al, and Al is uh, like a hologram that appears beside him with a little kind of early version of an iPhone, I guess, called Ziggy, and he taps on Ziggy. And then normally in the first scene of the show, he'll arrive, 
And Sam will be, oh, where am I? What's going to happen? And Al will arrive and tap on Ziggy and say, oh, the probability of your success is 0.1% or whatever. And Ziggy's always very pessimistic. He always suggests it's going to be a disaster, but in the end, as most TV shows do, everything comes good in the end and Sam wins, whatever situation it is. But I think often that seems like an, an appealing idea to us that we could have our own owl, our own kind of hologram, our own kind of angel, if you will, that would appear and help us, guide us through a particular season in life or a challenge we're going through. A bit like a kind of Downton Abbey spiritual butler, you know, just come along and do your dirty work for you, just kind of clean up the mess you've left behind, or some kind of angelic, Siri or Alexa that just, you know, you can... Because I, I, I I'm not really into that sort of thing. I have an Android phone and I say, hey, Google, and I ask it a question, and it's useless. Now, some way in the future, I'm sure that technology is going to be worthwhile, but I'm sure we could imagine it'd be crazy if just at the palm of our hands we could have this kind of spiritual power that we could talk to and some kind of holographic angel could appear and suddenly solve all our problems. Uh, and I'm kind of joking and being a bit far-fetched, but you know, we live in a world around us that can often look scary and difficult and chaotic. I think some of us, probably most of us in some way, yearn for some kind of help, a, a guide to lead us through, to tell us that everything's gonna be okay, to make everything work out for us. You know, I'm English, so some kind of you know, Brexit angel would be perfect. You know, just to arrive and I could sort of send them off to Parliament and give them all a slap and sort things out. But there's a desire, I think, within us for that kind of guide. As you read in that story of this angel that appears to the Israelites, and we kind of have a desire within ourselves, I think, for some sort of guide to help us through life. Someone who's going to come and provide for our needs. Someone is going to defend us against our enemies. You know, someone that we could just send into battle. I hear in the story like an army of hornets that we could just send out in front of us to take out our enemies. Someone who's going to instruct us and give us wisdom to do the right thing. Often we live, we go from situations to situations feeling a bit clueless about, well, what do I do here? How do I react? What should I do next? have some kind of angel that could just give us all the answers on tap. Sometimes what we are looking for. And in this story, we find this kind of guardian angel who appears to guard them on their way for the next series of their journey. He's come to guard them. He's come to defend them against their enemies. He's come to provide for them. He's come to heal for them. And in the Bible, often you find that angels appear from time to time through the story. We were looking a few weeks ago about how an, an angel appeared to Joshua. And Joshua didn't know who it was at first and thought it was just like a, some kind of military commander because his angel standing there with this massive sword in his hand ready for battle. Because we have this picture in our head, I think, of angels with kind of, you know, dressed in white with wings, kind of floating and looking very peaceful and just kind of hovering around above us. Whereas, I don't want to blow any of your bubbles, but in the Bible, angels never have wings. Sorry, 
There are no winged angels in the Bible. And they often, people often see angels and confuse them with people and also are normally pretty terrified of them. They come with a sense of power and authority. Even the word angel means messenger, means someone sent by God to declare something. You know, they appear to Joseph and Mary um, just before Jesus is born. They appear at the end of Jesus' story when uh, some of the women come and find his tomb empty and there's some angels sitting there to explain what's happened. And there's lots of other stories in the Bible of angels appearing. And in this story, I guess it's difficult for us to figure out what quite, what's quite is going on here. You know, who is this angel? And I think the best way to describe it is this is kind of, it's like the manifest presence of God. It's God sent his presence. It says here in the story that God says, for my name is in him. When the Bible uses that sort of language, because God's name is this holy, wonderful, profound thing. And there's something of the essence, the manifest presence of God in this angelic being. And all through the Exodus story, we see time and time again that God has always said that he will be with his people, that he'll guide them through. Before they're about to go through the Red Sea, God says to them, you know, I'm going to go ahead of you. Once they've been through the Red Sea, he sets up this like pillar of cloud at day and this pillar of fire by night to lead them through the wilderness. Later in the story, we'll get to the Ark of the Covenant, again, where God's presence is. And as they march through the wilderness, as they go from city to city, the Ark of the Covenant leads them. They follow it. It's the head of their army as they go through. And now God sent his angel to guide them through their story, through their path, through what he has for them. And like the Israelites, as we say all the time when we're looking at this Exodus story, is that like the Israelites, each of us, we're living out our own Exodus story. You know, in some ways you can map their journey onto the own kind of your own sort of spiritual geography of what God's doing in your soul. Because for each of us, there's this slavery, deliverance, journey through the wilderness leading to a promised land. And that's true not just for believers, but if you look in the world around us, all the time people talk about, they don't use the same language that we use, but people are living out their own redemption story. We talk about it all the time if you think about lots of the stories you'd find in movies or in books. Often we talk about it uh, about sports personalities, about football players, about how we'll talk about how they have this crisis in their life, this, you know, an injury or something, or some kind of situation that held them back, and there was some kind of moment where they overcame, they defeated those obstacles, and now the glory has come. They've achieved, they've reached their promised land. And we use this kind of narrative, this way of telling our stories all the time. Difficulty, obstacle, we overcome, we find our deliverance. We go through our wilderness season heading to the promised land. 
this land of dreams that we have for our lives, this thing that we're striving for. And I think all the time, you see it around us all the time, that on our journeys, people are looking for guidance, looking for some kind of almost angelic support for what they're going through in life. I saw a statistic this week that said 56% of young people have a, what they call a remixed belief system. In that, you know, you might read a, a, when you have to kind of fill in a survey to describe yourself, and it asks you what kind of, you know, what religion you adhere to. You know, you normally have five or six options and you tick a box and go on. But actually, most people will claim, particularly most young people, that they don't have one religion, that they often have many different things that they will follow or that they will use to help them. So it might be yoga or astrology or Christianity, and someone can have this kind of mix of beliefs that they all hold as, well, that helps me for this thing. And this helps me for that situation. And then Jesus helps me on a Sunday over here. Maybe that's true for you. Maybe that's how you live. You have lots of different kind of spiritual options which you pull upon to help guide you. Many people in our city live like that. People dabble in all sorts of different things to help them because our goal is self-improvement. That's the goal ahead of us. So we can have our, our 10 sort of steps to spiritual health. You know, step one, eat better. Step two, exercise more. Step three, cancel your Netflix subscription. Step four, sing some worship songs. You know, Jesus just becomes part of the mix with all these other ideas. I could have a bit of witchcraft over here, a bit of astrology over here, a bit of Jesus down here. Because the goal is making myself better. So why not just pull from different options? Because the goal is me and my own improvement, my own wellness. And it might be that you don't feel like you're pursuing any grand dream for your life. There's no promised land that you're heading to. But the kind of salvation you're looking for is just safety, just to not feel scared anymore, just to be at peace with the world. That's the salvation you desire. Oh, I just want, I just want some rest. I just don't want to be anxious anymore. You know, I just don't want to have these problems anymore. If those things could just go away. That's the salvation that I'm looking for. And in our search for salvation, we're trained not to look for spirituality externally, but internally. Each of us, we believe there's some kind of divine spark within us that if we could just ignite that into life, so I'll use all these different tools to try and breathe some life into myself to give me some kind of fulfillment, some happiness. And if you're here and you're a non-Christian, I'm not... I'm not just trying to pick on you this morning because Christians do this too. We all do this in different ways. So often, 
how we feel about God, how we feel about our relationship with God, we define that by how much we feel we are achieving our goals in life. And if we don't feel like we're making progress towards those things, then God isn't doing what he should do. You know, if I'm not happy enough as a Christian, then God has failed me. Because I should be happy. I should have all the things I need. I should have the right job. I should have the right relationships. I should have enough money. I'm entitled to these things. If I don't have them, then that's God's let me down. My guardian angel hasn't shown up. He's not doing his job properly. That's how we can treat Jesus sometimes. Because we're happy to be Christians but what we don't want is any authority over us. Because we're trained to fear that. Our culture says, you can, yeah, you can have all these spiritual things. Yeah, whatever they are, you can have them. But don't let it have any authority over you. Authority is bad. You know, Jesus can be your friend, but don't you dare call him your Lord, your King. He can be your Father, a nice cuddly bear you can come to but don't give him any power or authority in your life. And this kind of Christianity that we can live, in many ways, it's not much different from a kind of a second century Gnosticism. It's just our own belief and worldview shaped ultimately around who we are and what we want and what we desire. We want the benefits of belief. We want the benefits of Jesus but we want our individual autonomy to be maximized. I want Jesus, but I'm an individual, and that comes first. My own authority over myself rules above everything else. So I can have Jesus as long as he doesn't challenge me, as long as he just does what I say, as long as he just fulfills what I need to happen in my life. And the central goal in our life The central goal in the church is just for you to be happy, to be at one with yourself, to be getting the most out of things. And if that's not working, if you don't feel like the church is helping you achieve your goals, if the church isn't what you want it to be, well, just go somewhere else. I just won't go anymore because what's most important is me, what I think, my values, my dreams, my desires. If that doesn't work for me, then I'll go somewhere else. This doesn't have any authority over me. And anything that begins to threaten this autonomy becomes a bad thing. We find we fear any kind of commitment. We don't like to commit to relationships, to people. We don't like to commit to community because it challenges us. We fear being vulnerable with people. Because as soon as you're vulnerable with someone, you give up your power, right? Your power to be in control. If you don't tell anybody anything, if you never let people see what you're really like, then you're in control of your life. You're in control of this situation. As soon as you start letting people in, As soon as people start to see what you're really like, 
as soon as they get past your Instagram version of yourself, this nice rosy picture that you present, as soon as people get beneath that and they see what you're really like, then you lose a bit of your power. You lose a bit of your autonomy. You've given some of yourself away, and that's scary. It's terrifying. And we can go through life like this. We can go through our relationships like this, our marriages like this. Never really let people in, not really. But the thing is, even, even marriage ultimately is supposed to be disempowering. Because <laughs> it's not about you and your power. That's just a, a Western lie. <laughs> if you live your life just trying to retain your autonomy, to retain your authority, your control, your power over yourself, you'll live a long, miserable life. Often fruitfulness and blessing comes by letting people in, by letting go of your power, <laughs> letting go of your control, letting people see what you're really like. Because the thing is, you might think you need a kind of a nice angelic guide to lead you through to solve all your problems. But you need more than a guide. <laughs> we need a deliverer. And if you think all you need is just a little bit of help, that basically you're in control. Yeah, I've got this sorted. I've got this sussed. You know, Jesus can just help me in a few places where it gets a bit messy, but ultimately I know where I'm going. You know, I'm in control of myself. I have what it takes within me to do this. <laughs> if that's how you think, you've completely misunderstood the problem. <laughs> you've misunderstood the issue, what's really going on. And what you've misunderstood, firstly, you've misunderstood the power of sin. And secondly, you've misunderstood your capacity to deal with it. You think sin is just a little, it's just a religious problem anyway. I'll just brush it under the carpet. I can deal with that. Because I'm in authority, I'm in control. I can do this, so this doesn't have to be an issue in my life. And yet the reality is we live so often bound in slavery. Because sin has this hold on you, this grip on you. You might not like that word sin, that might scare you. It might just sound like a horrible Christian thing that isn't real. But there's powers around you that grip you, that control you, that you have tried to walk free from, and you know if you're really honest with yourself that you can't, that you make the same mistakes. And you might fix that one, but then suddenly another problem arises and you can't deal with that one. And then it suddenly morphs into this kind of issue over here, and then it gets bigger and more dangerous and more complex and you can't deal with it. But yet you keep trying to do it in your own strength. You keep trying to fix it yourself. You think, oh, I don't need to tell anyone about this. If I just knuckle down, if I just work a bit harder, I can get through this one. And so often we misunderstand, we underestimate the power of sin, and we overestimate our capacity to deal with it. 
Because we're taught that we have this kind of spark, this kind of inner thing within us, that if we just put the right resources in place, the right things into play, we can breathe into life this kind of inner power to fix this, like this kind of Jedi thing within us. We just need our right kind of Yoda to sort of pull it out and then away we go. We think that somehow within us there's something we can stir up to fix everything. And also I think often we've, we've just misunderstood the power of God. We treat God as this, you know, this kind of thing that we call up from time to time. Yes, we treat prayer in the same way. A bit like how we use Siri or Alexa on our phones. You know, ask it a question, gives us a rubbish answer. What's the point? We treat prayer in the same way. I'll just come to God, I'll throw my request down, nothing seems to happen, I'll move on. And so often we completely misunderstand his power. (laughs) We don't see what he's doing around us and in us and through us all of the time. Because so often we treat God like he's the co-pilot. That we're flying the plane. This is where I'm going on my life. This is the course that I've set. These are the, the, you know, my family, my friends, they're behind me, but I'm the pilot, I'm in charge. This is where I'm going. Jesus, come sit next to me in my co-pilot seat. You know, show me where to go. Occasionally take control of things to help me through. Be my kind of angelic support, but this is where I'm going. But he's not your co-pilot. You should stop treating him like that. Because the reality is he's the pilot. You need to switch seats. And yeah, we get this wonderful privilege that God gives us the ability to make our own decisions. He gives us the controls, but he's always there. Not just kind of helping us from behind, but he's gone ahead of us. Every situation you're walking through, he's already gone ahead. And you might think, well, that's, sometimes that's true, but not at the moment, you know, if we're really honest. But he, he has. He's gone ahead of you. He's working in all the different situations of your life. To, and most of the time, I think, we're probably only aware of maybe one or two percent of the things that God's doing in our life. I think maybe one day, we'll see the bigger picture and we'll think, oh, wow. You know, get those moments in your life when you look back and you think, oh, that's why that happened. I get it now. I didn't understand at the time. But I can look back now and see, yeah, that's, God did that for a reason. That hardship, oh, that happened to help me with this. And it suddenly makes sense. Doesn't mean it was a good thing to walk through the time. It might have been a really painful thing but suddenly you see God's hand in it. There are other things that you look back and you think, I don't know why that happened. And I think lots of the time, we probably won't know until we get to heaven. I think, I don't know. But I trust that God's in, in control.
trust that he knows what he's doing. And not in a kind of distant, foreign, kind of weird, kind of pilot up in the sky, just kind of shouting down instructions, but he's here. He's with you in power, in might, in his wonder. He's, he's with you. I read this wonderful quote earlier this week from Robert Murray McShane. He's got a great name. I wish that was my name. He was a Scottish preacher from a few hundred years ago. He said this, he said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Give me that. If you could hear him when you wake up in the morning and you're processing the day, eating your breakfast, your toast, your coffee, if you could hear Jesus praying for you, for the, for the challenges you have ahead that day, how would that make you feel? Be like, yes. Be like, yes. Jesus, is, he's on this. That'd be amazing, right? You wouldn't fear a thing, would you? Like, Jesus, creator of the entire world, my Lord and Savior is praying for me. I can hear him praying for me. This day, is gonna, I'm going to smash it. That's how you'd feel, right? Well, <laughs> he goes on to say, yet this distance makes no difference because he is praying for me. <laughs> that's, that's the wonderful reality is you can't hear him in the next room, but he is praying for you. <laughs> As the Bible says, Jesus is praying for you. It's one of the things he does now as the ascended Christ. He's risen into heaven and he looks down on his church, his people, and he prays for us. We were saying about it earlier, but he fights our battles. God, that should give us great confidence in his power, in his ability to do what needs to happen in your life. He's not just some distant dream, this nice kind of weird deity million miles away. He's with you. He's praying for you. But more than anything, it's not that God has suddenly stepped into your will to sit in your co-pilot seat and guide you on the way, but he's called you into his journey, into what he's doing. He's given you a part to play in his kingdom, in his plans. Because Jesus, he is, he is our guide, but he's not like a guide for the tourist. He's a guide for the hopelessly lost. If you feel like that this morning, just feel completely, hopelessly lost. He's your guide for you. It says in John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus isn't the guide that comes to help you on your way. That's how we treat Jesus so much. Just help me through this season. Get me through this bit. He's not just this guide to help you navigate through the tricky bits. He is the way. 
in, in his very self. He is the way. He is the answer. Because he's more than just a nice guide. He's this wonderful, loving shepherd. It says in Mark 6, that Jesus went ashore and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is this wonderful, compassionate, caring God who can look on a whole crowd of people and not just see scary faces like we see or just a whole blur of people. He has compassion on people. He's this shepherd that's come to guide us, to lead us. He's our deliverer, this warrior that's come to defeat our enemies. He's the terror that's gone before us. Those words in that passage we read earlier can scare us, this terror that goes out to take all these enemy nations. You think, oh, how horrible. What it's telling us is that God's gone ahead of you to defeat your enemies. Sin, the devil, death. God's gone to defeat all of those enemies that stand before you and to deliver you. And he also, he works little by little to shape you and change you. That's what it says in that passage. God's going to defeat their enemies, but he's going to do it little by little because he knows what he's doing. Because that's so often we want God to just suddenly break through. Just like a moment of power that we think, oh, just, I, I can't get past this thing. If you could just obliterate me or obliterate this situation with kind of a lightning bolt of your power, then job done. And sometimes God works like that. But most of the time, God works through process through the journey, through the little by little. And we see the little by little, and that for us so often we evaluate that as God's not doing anything. Because change is happening so slowly that surely that's the evidence that he's not involved. But actually, the little by little is the evidence that he's in control. And that he knows better than you do. that he has the authority. He's leading the way. He's our provider. He's our healer. He's come to instruct us and care for us. Most wonderfully, right at the end of Jesus' ministry on the earth, before he ascended and went to heaven, even though he was just about to disappear from his disciples, he gathered them together and said, Behold, same as it said at the start of this passage, Behold, I am with you always to the very end. It's a wonderful symmetry between those two passages in Exodus, where God sends his angel to be with his people and says, Behold, I've sent someone to be with you. Now Jesus says to us, Behold, I've sent someone to be with you.
Holy Spirit. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit comes and fills us. He makes his home inside of you. He comes to take over. He comes to lead you and to guide you, to speak to you, to declare Jesus' love over your heart, to remind you of his grace and his mercy, his deep affection for, for you. You know, we might desire some kind of magical guardian angel to appear. <laughs> and you think you've misunderstood the problem. You need so much more than that. You need a deliverer to come and set you free. You need the power of God to come and inhabit you and lead you through. And he's done exactly that. Let me pray and then we can worship together. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you, God, that we can read words written thousands of years ago, but they're still as true for us today as they ever have been and ever will be. God, I just want to take all my desire to have my own autonomy, to be in control for my relationships, my situations, even for this church, where I want those things just to come and bless me and to fulfill all my dreams and to be what I want it to be. I want to bring all those things to you and say, God, have your way. God, your will be done. Your kingdom come. Who am I to suddenly want authority over those things? God, I want to I serve you as your humble servant. But at the same time, know that I'm your beloved son. That you've called me into this deep and rich relationship with you. So now when I pray, your will be done. It doesn't have to be a scary thing. Oh, it's just a joyful, releasing thing. Oh, I don't have to pretend I'm in control of everything. <laughs> I don't have to pretend that I've got this sussed, that I know how this is going to work out. I can fix this issue. I don't have to pretend anymore. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Jesus knows. He's my Lord, my Savior. He's in control. He's in charge of my life. And I want to submit my life wholly and completely to you because you've delivered me, you've rescued me, and you set me in your family. You've sent your Holy Spirit to live inside of me. Oh, what glories there are in you. Thank you, Jesus for all that you've done for us. Help us to follow you, we pray. Amen.